Hello everyone and welcome back to the podcast and today we're joined from over the water by Drew Contreras who's a physical therapist that I've known for a number of years and again he's definitely someone who I've been very interested to chat with. He's had, um, well he's been involved in a hectic couple of months over in the States which we'll get on to later on but first and foremost welcome Drew, thank you for joining us. Oh thanks for having me. No problem and so physical therapy, how did you get started off in that? So I was a, uh, a high school football player, you know, American football, not your football, but, um, and I, you know, I got hurt. Um, and when I got hurt, uh, you know, I, uh, sprained my MCL and my ACL and went to physical therapy. And I distinctly remember, um, all I really did was I would come in, I would do my exercises and my physical therapist, uh, basically stood around in a polo shirt and warm-up pants with a cup of coffee in his hand and would just yell at me from across the gym while he watched sports center and i just remember sitting there thinking like this is your job and he was like yeah it's the greatest job in the world and i said i think i want to do this so that was how i that was how i got introduced to physical therapy um and then that's just kind of been uh you know what kicked it off for me uh was having that patient experience and then um, kind of took it professionally and that's what I've been doing ever since. So in terms of that then, so what are the steps that you need to do? Like, is there a certain number of subjects you needed to have studied beforehand to get onto a university course? Yeah. So for me, um, you know, I did a, I did a bachelor's degree with a concentration in the prerequisites for the, the master's program. Uh, you know, and I'm old enough that when, I went through physical therapy school. The master's programs were just coming out. So it was a new thing. You weren't required to have a master's in physical therapy, but I went ahead and uh, I went to a program that had it. Um, And so, you know, it's your basic sciences that you, you know, chemistry, physics, um, things like that, that you need to do. And then you apply for for admittance into the, uh, to the graduate programs. Mm. And then when you're doing that, do you have any idea where you want to go? Like you were playing college football. Was that something that you wanted to go into? You know, it really was. um, But I think that as I started gaining experience um, and kind of understanding, um, you know, where where I wanted to practice, the things I wanted to do, um, I also had a, a side, I guess, direction uh, with the military, because I had a military scholarship for college. So I uh, went on active duty after I graduated and spent the majority of my career uh, working with the military and in the military. So uh, I kind of broke off of thinking about sports, um, you know, and then kept in the, in the military uh, kind of pathway my time. And why was that? Why did you decide to do the military path? So I had a, I had a, uh, a placement while I was in school uh, working with a professional football team. And I distinctly remember working with a patient who had a, uh, he had an ACL tear and we had rehabbed him, right? So I I had rehabbed him his entire time, um, got him back to where he could play, uh, you know, and his goal was to get off the injured reserve list and get cleared so he could return to playing. And we worked really hard we got him cleared. And as soon as he cleared, the team cut him and the team couldn't cut him while he was injured. So they had to pay him. Uh, 
But as soon as he was uh, able to play and he wasn't injured anymore, they cut him. That was my first like real introduction to professional sports to understand then like, this is a business much more than, than it is, you know, what, what you think of I, ideologically, like, oh, these are the players, you know, love the franchise and the fans and, and all the stuff that's involved with sport. And then when you see the business end of it, where, look, they just wanted him to get better so they could cut him. Um, you know, so that was a harsh realization for me as a, as a young man to realize that all my work just went to getting this guy fired. So that's when I thought, you know, I don't know that this is really the best thing for me. Um, and so that's why I kind of went away from that side. Mm. And what was it about the military that particularly attracted you? Have you, have you got back black parents, the history of that and from your background? Yeah, I mean, my father was, was in the Navy um, and a brother. But I think the, the truth is, for me, the real... Um, I guess the, the real hook of, of working with the military is it's an all volunteer force, right? So nobody's there unless they choose to be, right? So number one, so you kind of have this um, sample of convenience, right? If you will, right? Like the only people are there are people that want to be there. And then as you work with different types of units, you start to realize that it, it starts tearing itself even more. So what you get is you eventually get down to people who really just want to do their job, who when you work with them as a clinician, they want to get better. Um, they're highly motivated. For the most part, they're healthy individuals. Um, so it's just, it's a, it's a really great patient experience with that regard, right? Uh, from a clinical standpoint, it's really great because there's no insurance. So I'm not limited by numbers. I'm limited by what I think is the best course of action. Um, we have expanded privileges in the military where you can order x-rays, MRIs, um, lab studies. If there's other things I need to consult with other people like, um, like a sports medicine or ortho, they're usually down the hall. And, and it's much more of a collaborative team than as opposed to, well, I, you know, I got a referral from some physician I've never met. Um, so it's, it's a much better clinical environment to work in. And I guess the best way I would describe it is you have a lot of advanced practices, right? I was a, you know, a dry needling clinician in the early 2000s, way ahead of this recent kind of expansion of people doing dry needling. Um, so, you know, in those senses, like I was way ahead of the curve with my clinical skills, just because you have your own medical system and uh, and you're able to to take on those advanced practice patterns. So so I found it, you know, it was great, really good uh, for, for patients, and excellent as far as being a clinician. Mm. And so while you're studying, then, so what does a scholarship actually entail? So the scholarship uh, that it was uh, to help pay for college, but in return I would spend time uh, on active duty working with the patient. So that was kind of the, the give and take of it. And then after, you know, my commitment was over for my scholarship, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, it was a good place for a good fit for me. So I stayed in there uh, for over 20 years. Right. So, so while you're doing your studies, you're also doing placements and working there, but you actually doing any, how long is the course for, for one? Like, is that something that you, you do over a period of time? For physical therapy or? Yeah, well, yes, does the scholarship change anything that you yeah. on that? No, it didn't really change anything. 
Um, right. So I had four years of undergraduate and then just about three years of graduate uh, for my master's. And the scholarship really just kind of coincided with it. I had some obligations of things to do here and there, but it never really interfered with my studies at all. Yeah. Mm. And so during those placements, were they all domestic based or would you go overseas? Yeah, everything was domestic. I didn't go overseas. There was some opportunity, but, um, you know, it just it just didn't really uh, everything I, I was looking for was was mostly stateside. So I didn't need to to kind of look overseas. Mm. And then once you'd graduated, once you'd done your master's, then what happens? What, what role did you go into from there? Yeah. So after that, um, I uh, went down to Georgia to Fort Benning, Georgia, and I spent four years there and I kind of split my time. I spent a lot of time working with um, what we call initial entry training. So what you think of as boot camp or basic training uh, where, you know, there were thousands and thousands of them in this area. And there was a, a group of us as clinicians where you'd show up in the morning at five o'clock in the morning, and there would just be a line of 18 to 20 year olds with their various problems and you would just take them out of line. So um, it's, it was a great, if you've ever heard of uh, Malcolm Gladwell, right? He's an author who says that you need about 10,000 repetitions of something to become really good at it. Uh, you know, he cites like the Beatles and things like that. So definitively in those three years, I had well over 10,000 encounters where I got really good at understanding, you know, foot problems, stress fractures, you know, femur issues, shoulder subluxations. There's just lots and lots of repetitions of these various musculoskeletal injuries that really kind of cemented the foundation for me of, you know, what would become a long career of me looking at this stuff. Yeah, Outliers is a great book. So yeah, definitely recommend yeah. Definitely recommend doing that one. Yeah, no, I can see that's really good because you're just getting exposure to everything and anything really. And it allows you to really, uh, really to work through each of those things. So how much supervision do you get in those areas? Like how funded is your military? Like we always see the, um, that basically it seems like you can pretty much get whatever you want. I've been lucky enough to go to some of your medical facilities and they're absolutely incredible. Yeah, you know, you're, the best way to explain uh, you know, a, a physio in, in the U.S. system is to consider us a physician extender is the best way to think about it. Like, I'm not a primary care doctor. I'm not interested in your, your cough and runny nose. But if it's a non-surgical musculoskeletal problem, you're going to see a, a, a PT well before you'll see any sort of orthopedist or, or any other uh, definitive surgical specialty. Because the reality is, right, like most of these things are not surgical, unless it's clearly evident at the moment, right? If there's a, a bone sticking out, I mean, obviously take them there. But most of the, you know, most of the, the repetitive strain in orthopedic or sports medicine injuries are non-surgical, right? So, so the reality is we just would see the vast majority, I'd say 75 to 80% of those things uh, on the first encounter. So, so when you operate in that setting, like you have a lot of autonomy, right? Now you have colleagues, right? And you can certainly consult um, with them and, and kind of make sure you know what's going on, but there's a significant amount of autonomy to, to practice kind of whatever you, how you see things as they present. 
Yeah, because your, your studies are, are quite extensive compared to the three standard years that we require over here, unfortunately. Right. So once you'd been, you'd been doing that job where you're seeing the, the 10,000 Malcolm Gladwell patients, what happens? How long were you there for? So I was there for four years um, and then it was time to go. You know, So the, the one thing that the military system does is you tend to not stay in a place too long. They tend to, as you kind of progress in your career, as you come up to a next step or phase or a promotion, they tend to move you so that you can kind of be in a new environment um, to kind of figure out that leadership position. Uh, so after I was there, I went to North Carolina uh, to Fort Bragg, where I got set up with um, some airborne units. So paratroopers was and special operations folks were the majority of my patients there. And then during that time, uh, you know, we were in the middle of Operation Iraqi Freedom. So I wound up um, going deployed to Iraq with the 82nd Airborne for 15 months. And I was the first physical therapist to, to kind of go with them and deploy with them and stay with the, the troops during the deployment. And the, the best way to explain that and think about that is it's really no different than um, being like with a team, like a large traveling team or a, you know, I guess a, a show or something like that, where like you have your cohort of patients and you take care of them and wherever they're going, you're going with them. Um, and that's the model that uh, we've kind of developed now. We, we, we realize that there's a large cost saving measure as far as your ability to manage things um, in place without having to remove people from a theater. Uh, as well as keeping continuity, right? Like if you have, it, again, it's no different than a team, right? If the star running back gets hurt, right? You need to keep them working with the team. You're there, you can able to keep, stay working with them. So the same thing with the military, if you have a, you know, a key leader or somebody with a special skill or whatever that needs to stay with the group, if you're there and you can keep them um, able to do their job, well, then that's a it's a cost-saving measure, but it's also a huge continuity measure of being able to support the team that you're with. Mm. So during that 15 months then, do you come back to the US at any point? Uh, I got a week off. Right, so for that entire and, time, you're there, you come back once. Yeah, it was, it was a long time, it was right. a long time, you know, but um, while it was, look, it was challenging. It wasn't always, it wasn't always great days, but um, it was very professionally rewarding, right? Like. Uh, you know, you're, you're there taking care of people that are, um, you know, putting themselves in harm's way and you're kind of doing your part for them and therefore doing your part for the bigger picture. Um, and, you know, kind of, again, right, you are the musculoskeletal provider in the area. So, you know, you have to be very good at what you do. You have to be willing to get your hands dirty and do those sorts of things. So uh, professionally, it was, it was really rewarding. Mm. And what is the environment like there? Like you, you're in this mad war zone. We, you know, we see it all on TV. It looks like a terrifying place to be. What was it like for you on the inside? So I spent a lot of time, I would, which, what we would call like uh, rotate throughout the theater. So think of it like this. Think of it as like, almost like, almost like you, you work for like a, like a, a football division, right? Where like there's teams in different areas, right? So I would circulate throughout these different areas, uh, kind of 
pretty routinely. So it was easier for me to go to places than for people to leave their places and come to me, if that makes sense. So with that kind of model, um, you learn to travel light, right? You learn to not use, um, you learn to be flexible with what you have, right? Because you don't have the, the trappings of, I've got a huge gym with squat racks and everything I could think of around, right? You, I basically had it down to a portable hard chest where I would put in all my, if I used any treatment modalities or I needed any taping supplies or whatever I needed, I kind of had in this big box and a table and I would throw it in the back of this truck and that's what I would take with me. So um, it was really good to be able to learn that skill set to manage patients, um, you know, using your, your, your mind and your hands and using kind of uh, just, just the things that you really needed uh, or the things that were really going to make a difference as opposed to just doing things that, that were minimally helpful or didn't give you a large advantage. Uh, so in that sense, right. So moving around, you know, kind of limited stuff, uh, but it also challenges you to, you know, be creative, you know, be very meaningful in the things you're going to do and your approach to it. Uh, you know, only giving patients things that they really need to do because they're, they're busy, right. They're busy doing other things. They don't have three hours a day to do your rehab exercises, right? They're, they're busy, you know, in the military running missions. So uh, learning to get very concise about your treatment plans. Um, but, you know, you know, sometimes the, the areas were not super nice. I'm not going to lie, right? Sometimes things were, uh, were rough traveling from place to place. Um, but I think, again, like it's like anything, uh, you know, when you, you're with a, a group of people long enough, right, you kind of come to depend on each other. So uh, kind of like a brotherhood in that sense. And did you ever, were you ever under attack in the, the premises that you were? Did you ever experience anything like that? Yeah. So there were times where they would ask us to go out and uh, we would basically do uh, military aid missions. Like we might go to a village and there might be a kid who, you know, um, had a leg injury for whatever reason. And like, we would get them crutches, right. Or helping somebody else, you know, with what, whatever their, you know, whatever it is, is a will of trying to work with the local population um, and making sure that, uh, you know, we were helping them cope with whatever we could. Uh, and likewise, right. Like when you travel around these places, um, there, there's always exciting stuff that's going to happen. So, you know, you pretty much, you have a, a basic, uh, an EMT skill set, right. So you can respond if there's things like, um, uh, roadside bombings or gunfire or things like that. So you find yourself sometimes having to, you know, be a part of that team that's taking care of people or moving people from out of, out of dangerous situations to try and get them uh, to treatment facilities. So yeah, that stuff kind of, it kind of goes with it, right? And, you know, that's, that's really interesting and exciting for some people. And for some people that's terrifying and they don't want anything to do with it. So, you know, just understanding that as, as you're in the military, that's just kind of comes with the territory. Mm. And do you get training in terms of any of those combat situations? Oh, definitely. Right. There's advanced uh, trainings, um, certifications for what we call combat lifesavers and emergency medicine uh, and additional training that, you know, uh, all 
medical people deploying to theaters will get. You know, there's there's lots of opportunities for that. You know, and that's the other great thing about the working with the military um, is training is part of what you do as a professional. So if you're medical, you just do medical training, right? But even if you were a infantryman or you flew helicopters, right? Like training is a normal portion of what you do for a living. So it translates really well. So, you know, it was really nice to, to kind of be able to be involved in that and get advanced training and lots of uh, expanding my own skill set. Yeah, that's so yeah. So when you're actually out in those environments, do you do you ever have to get into a combat situation yourself? Yeah, it happens, right? You know, and and that's when you know they the the nice the the best way I've ever heard it put is that you know you if you're a military medical provider. There are two, you're a twofold person. You are a medical professional, but you have a profession of arms, right? So you're held to the same standards as everybody. You need to stay in the same shape physically. You need to be able to perform the same functions um, with rifles and shooting and, and all those sorts of things to make sure that you can protect yourself and the people around you. So, you know, it's, it's inevitable, right? If you're kind of linked up with those, um, you know, combat units, if you're working with them, if they're out doing their job and you're with them, then, you know, those things are, are, are going to be part of it to an extent. Mm, yeah, no, that's, that's uh, it's definitely different to working in an elite sports team. <laughs> a little different. Yeah. And in terms of the injuries that you would see then, did your scope end at MSK? Like, would you see blast injuries? How, how would that work? So uh, one of the additional jobs I had um, that kind of falls into the PT realm is when you have a lot of injuries, it's what we call a mass casualty, meaning there are more casualties than you have people to evaluate them at the moment, right? So um, if that happened, which it happened a few times while I was there where, you know, there might be 20 or 30 people that are various levels of injury, right? Some with, you know, uh, limb injuries, some with, you know, head wounds, somewhat significant chest trauma, like lots of different things. But, you know, as soon as the doctor or the PA starts treating somebody, right, that means that all those other people have to wait. So I would do a lot of triage where it was, you know, determining what needs to be seen right away, what can wait a little bit, uh, what those patients that no matter what medical intervention we provide, it's probably not going to have a good outcome. So we kind of classify them off to the side a little bit or the people that you know what you can wait till tonight or tomorrow you know your injuries aren't that bad right now we have other things we have to take care of um so definitely right blast injuries and and gunshot wounds and shrapnel and things like that so you know and this really kind of bridges away from the traditional pt role but um in the service and when you're kind of there um it really turns out like our knowledge of kinesiology and anatomy uh, really gives way to, to, to kind of filling that need. Mm. Yeah, no, I can imagine you have to learn quickly to, yeah, you get to read what's going to happen. So once you had that deployment, what happened after you returned? So after that, um, came back to the States, uh, got a, a job at the Pentagon, which is kind of the, uh, the central hub for the U.S. military, 
Um, so I was there for, for a while running their uh, wellness and, and rehabilitation programs for all the people inside of that building. Um, and then after that, I uh, got a tasking to go help out over at the White House since it's just across the way, just across the river there. Um, so Drew, just going back to that first role you got then, like you, you're kind of making this seem like this is a completely normal thing to go through. It's like you're at the Pentagon, you're running the wellness program. That appears to be a huge job. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a lot more people than you think inside that building. Um, it's a very stressful building. Um, I think that uh, it, the best way to think about it is just like, your average office building where people work twice as long is the best way to put it, right? People routinely put in 12, 14 hour days in that building all the time. That's a very normal thing. Um, and so uh, a lot of stress, a lot of people who come to that building with their various problems, right? Cause they're all soldiers or other branches of service. So they've got their injuries that they're dragging along. And while they're at the Pentagon, um, while they have a lot of office work, it's also an opportunity for them to, if they have elective procedures that need to be done, you know, something like a, like maybe like a meniscal tear, like they needed a knee scope, but they just couldn't get it done because they were too busy with their um, combat units or, you know, things like that, where um, now they, they have a moment where, yes, they're doing a lot of work, but they can also, we're there in the building with them. So it's easy for them to take 45 minutes out of their schedule, come over to the clinic, do their rehab, and then go back to work. So, um, you know, and, and so that was a pretty good uh, opportunity to, I guess, uh, you know, work with uh, the next kind of level of patients, right? You know, the, the average age, I would say, was probably uh, closer to 40, as opposed to the 20-something-year-old that I had been working with, you know, at the front end of my career. Mm. So, you know, so lots more cumulative degeneration issues, C-spine stuff, you know, shoulders that just after 15 years of, you know, exercising five days a week, it's starting to just kind of give them problems and those sorts of things. So yeah, so there's a lot of stuff going on there, um, but it, a good environment to get things done. Yeah, no, I can imagine. So how did you get that job? Uh, somebody's, <laughs> so coming out of my deployment from Iraq, um, they said, hey, uh, you know, you've been most you've spent the majority of your career so far with combat troops. And uh, they sent me there for polishing is how I would put it to learn to be a little more uh, polite, <laughs> a little more polished is what they said. This is this will be good for your career. It'll help polish you up a little bit. So do you think this whoever said that to you, were they were you, um, did they have it in mind that you were going to ultimately end up in the White House then, do you think? No, no, I don't think so. But I think it was just, um, I think I'd done a really good job in the first half of my career of um, taking the hard jobs, doing the hard things, um, you know, and, and, you know, and, and realizing that there was, that I had the opportunity then to continue and be successful in my career and become a senior leader uh, but you know, you need to be able to, to do that in a professional and polite manner as you kind of, you know, 
get grayer hair and get a little older, you need to be able to sit in a room full of people and not insult them and be able to get your point across, you know, which is different than when you work with 20 year olds, then you just insult them. So I think it was, you know, it was, it was definitely a way to progress my career and groom me as a, for a senior leadership role, but the white house really was never in the cards. That was a, that just, was an alignment of something that, that nobody saw coming and it just kind of happened. Mm. So in terms of that, how did you find going from your work in frontline, like you say, with some of the younger soldiers, how did you find the transition to having to be a little bit more diplomatic? It was not easy at first for me, to be, to be honest, right? I was very used to um, working with, you know, like, like let's like, people whose mindset was that they were indestructible, right? These are hard charging 20 year olds who, you know, with 4% body fat, whose mindset is that they can't be stopped, right? And then you transition to that to a 40 year old office worker um, and you can't talk to them the same way. You can't expect them to uh, follow your guidance in the same manner. They ask a lot more questions. They want a lot more explanation. They want you to give them options and go over things as opposed to the 20 year old who would just do whatever you say, right? If I said, I need you to sit with your leg on the wall for a minute, they would go over and put their leg on the wall and sit there for a minute. Would never, never ask a question as opposed to now it was, I need you to go or like, why am I doing that? Does it really need to be a minute? Do I do both legs or one leg? Can I do it at this wall? Which wall should I do it on? Which way should I face when I do it? Like, it was like that all the time. So it was a hard transition for me. Um, and it was, a, you know, and it was something that I needed to learn to do better as a clinician, as a professional, but it was not, uh, it wasn't super easy for me. Mm. So that, that position of wellness, in, in charge of wellness, what did that encompass? Was it treatment or was it managing? Like, so, so there, yeah, so there was certainly the, the, recovery and rehabilitation portion of it that the more traditional clinical staff took care of. Uh, but the wellness portion was more a matter of looking at um, human performance and making sure that people were still um, able to, to direct and take care of any other uh, things that, were, that would limit them. Great examples are body composition, um, you know, height and weight, uh, as you, you know, you're used to, so a lot of it, I would explain what we called is the, the, the Ferrari Ford effect, where you get people who are used to being in, in these very uh, intense roles where, you know, they're running five miles a day, doing, you know, ridiculous amounts of exercises for 15 years of their career, every single day, that's what they do every single day, and they become finely tuned, right? knowing how fast they can run, how many repetitions they can do. So you know, we call that like the Ferrari factor. And then they would come, you know, to the Pentagon. And now your job was to sit in a chair for 12 hours a day and make PowerPoints, right? And do briefings. So people's, you know, there was a dramatic decrease in the amount of physical exertion, just, you know, not only in your personal exercise, but what you would do during the day, right? You get up, you sit on a train, you commute into the city, you walk to your office, build your cubicle, and you sit in your cubicle for 12 hours, and then you get up, you walk out to the train, you go home, and it's been 14 hours, right? You eat something, you go to sleep, you get up, and you repeat it, as opposed to, I get up, I work out, 
I go to work and at work, then we go somewhere and I do something else physical. And then we go somewhere and I do something else physical where, so this huge transition where a lot of people struggled with it. So we would, you know, look at things like sleep uh, performance, help them understand um, getting proper sleep cycles, um, any of the other mitigating factors. Another, you know, thing we found a lot of was vitamin deficiencies, right? All of a sudden you're used to working outside, being outside in the sunlight, like in Georgia for 12 hours a day. And now you sit inside of a concrete office building and you never see the sun. Like the joke was always, if you don't have a window in your, in your office, you would ride the train in the dark, go into the building, leave the building, ride the train. And when you got home, it was dark again. You would not get sunlight for months. So like literally people's vitamin D's would, they're diff they would drop down. So, you know, with all these other mitigating things that we would find, you know, helping them cholesterol rates and, you know, all more of the, the healthy wellness population side, things that we know are mitigating factors to physical health and physical performance, uh, but just kind of helping tie those two things together for them was really the role. Mm. Yeah, no, I can imagine it's different skill set completely for you as well. So in terms of the White House then, how long were you at the Pentagon for? And then how did you tra transition to the White House? So I was at the Pentagon for uh, just about three years and then transitioned over to the White House and I was over there for seven years. And how did that happen? How did the... So, um, so in addition to being at the, uh, at the Pentagon, I'm also a sports medicine clinical specialist. So I was kind of the the DC sports medicine PT for the army, kind of the one guy in the area. Um, and over at the white house, um, about mm, probably eight to 12 months into the Obama administration, there was a large incidence of middle-aged white males with patella tendon, Achilles tendon ruptures, because everybody wanted to play basketball with the president, even if you know, these 50 year old guys had picked up a basketball since they were 17, but sure enough, they were, they would go out on the court and start playing and just a lot of, a lot of tendon ruptures. So there was enough of them that it was easier for me, kind of similar to Iraq, right? Easier for me to go there and treat these people there instead of having them leave the white house to go to a physical therapy center. So, um, it just became, uh, it was, I just had this kind of cohort of people that I was working with and, and, and then it, it became a matter of kind of the victim of your own success, right? Kind of like once people figure out, oh, well, you could do that. Can you do this? Yeah, I can do this. I can help you with that. It just started snowballing to the point where it became a, a job unto itself, uh, but I still had my other job. So now you know, I was like everybody else, working 14 hours a day because I have two jobs now. Um, and, and then it just evolved into uh, the White House decided they wanted me there permanently full-time. So they created a position and just transferred me over there. So in terms of your, your first contact with the president then, how does that come about? Was that while you were at the Pentagon, you would see him as part of these basketball games? Right, right. So it was really a matter of, you know, he, he was like like any other, you know, 50 something year old guy who's working out and doing his stuff and, you know, whatever issue he has or whatever, um, you know, was that, Hey, can you, can you help him out with that? Yeah, I think I can help out with that. 
So, you know, help him out with whatever his issue is. And then, you know, kind of the same thing of like, well, can you help out this other person? Because they, you know, they've got an issue. Yep. I can do that. And then it became, you know, you start develop. it's like anything, I think in a pro team, when you start developing a working relationship, you know, with people who have, um, I, I guess like bubbles or like, you know, they limit the contact, right. I'm sure I've never worked with somebody like a LeBron James, but I imagine it's something like that where not, not everybody's in his business, right? Like I'm sure like whoever, you know, when you, when you get a, a, a premier athlete, like I don't, I don't imagine, you know, Ronaldo has like a hundred people that are always in his business, helping him out with everything. I think once they, once they get comfortable with somebody and they find somebody with a good skill set that can help them, then it's, it's easier to keep known entities kind of within that, sphere if they need something than to just always be reaching out and grabbing other people mm. and i guess the security element must be a big part of that as well yeah it definitely is right like it's it's the most secure man in the world so you know they generally don't like just random people showing up um and you know there's certain there's certain clearance levels you need to be around uh senior levels of the administration and I had those clearance levels. So once you kind of have them, it's easy to maintain, it's easier to maintain it than it is to give people new, new people clearances. So, um, so it's, it's kind of one of those double-edged swords of, well, if you're good at it and you're here, we could just kind of keep you here um, without, it's easier to keep somebody in a position than it is to bring in a new person into that position. So that security component, um, you know, plays a big role in it. Mm. So your first interaction with the president then, so what's he like? Like, how are you? Are you nervous? What's, what are your thoughts on it? So, you know, it's funny. I'll, I'll tell you a story. So, um, you know, I was, I don't know that nervous was the right word as much as like, I think I was more worried about making sure that I didn't mess up something clinically. Do you know what I mean? Like, I think I was focused on that. Like, I hope I got this. I don't want to, I don't want to do something wrong. Right. I think that's where I was mentally was, you know, make sure I'm thorough, make sure I do a good job. And so the first time we meet, um, we, so we go and uh, he introduces himself and says, Oh, come with me. Let's go. You know, we'll go to uh, the residences where the president the family lives, they have their own area that nobody else goes to. But he said, well, why don't you come upstairs? Um, Cause I, you know, I take my suit jacket and tie off and we'll do this upstairs. Great. No problem. So we get into this elevator and he says to me, he says, Hey man, where are you from? And I said, oh, I'm, I'm from Cleveland. And he said, Cleveland. Really? Yeah. He said, ah, oh, Sorry to hear about LeBron. This was like three days after like LeBron had just like, hey, sorry, I'm leaving Cleveland. And I was like, I was dumbfounded. I was like, you're really talking crap on me? Like I've known you for like eight seconds and you're talking smack on me. Um, so then like I replied with like, well, at least, you know, the Indians are better than the White Sox, right? So it was just, that's kind of how he is. Um, he is a uh he's a river right he will dish it out you know to to people around to kind of see like you know how much 
can I joke around with you? Or, you know, what, where, where do we stand? Um, he's very much a guy guy is what I would explain it as. Like, um, if you want to talk sports, basketball, or, or things like even like anything, tennis, soccer, like he is a sports junkie. So uh, he's absolutely like, you, you would be super comfortable if you if you like sports, just sitting down and having a conversation with him about anything, any sports topic at all. Um, the, the, the big hangup with him is that he's very easy to talk to, right? He's kind of, kind of comes across as a pretty even mellow person. Um, but what doesn't always come across is intellectually, he's by far the smartest person in the room. Right. And I think that there's lots of people that have underestimated that, right. And maybe said some things or kind of thought that they could talk a little faster or a little talk around some things. Um, but he's incredibly sharp. And so um, that's just the, the, the one thing I'd say is like easy to talk to nice guy, but definitively much smarter than you are typically. So do you think that is that a tactic that he's got that he will disarm you with his, his normal conversation about sports or is that just him? I mean, to a degree, right? I mean, he's a very, you know, uh, charismatic individual, right? And I think it's just um, a, an easy way to, to connect with people. Um, you know, I've, I've, it's really interesting, right? Because the person I know uh, as, you know, President Barack Obama is different than, um, than like different than the, the outward facing persona because I, you know, I used to always forget, not forget, like don't, don't put it that way, right? Like I always understood my place uh, as far as this went, but because I would interact with him so frequently, there was nothing um, irregular about it. So it was always really interesting to me to be in a place where people met him for the first time, right? And so here's another, here's a really good story I'll tell you. Um, so I was, uh, my in-laws, my father-in-law, my mother-in-law, live in Pennsylvania and it, President Obama was going to their town for whatever event it was. And he said, hey, don't, don't you have family that live there? I said, yeah, my, my mother and father, I love it. He's like, well, bring them to the event and I'll, I'll say hello, you know, we'll take a picture with them. And I was like, oh, that, that's great, thanks. So I told my in-laws and my mother-in-law was not the hugest supporter, right? And she was like, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell him what I think. He's gonna have to hear from me. I said, you, you go right ahead. You, you say whatever it is you feel like you're going to say, because I've, I've watched this happen before. So I was like, sure, go ahead. You say whatever. So we're standing there in line, um, you know, and there's probably a line of like 10 people in front of us. And she's like, I'm going to tell him. Nah, nah, nah. So sure as we, soon as we get up there, right. So like we step up and they go, Oh, Mr. President, this is uh, you know, Dr. Drew Contreras with, Drew, oh, is this your mother-in-law? Oh, come here, give me a hug. It's so nice to meet you. And my mother-in-law went from like, I'm going to tell him what I think to like, bleh, bleh. and she was just like, uh, uh. And I've seen that happen so many times with you know, the President Obama and First Lady Michelle Obama that people just, bleh, like they just, just can't talk at the moment that, you know, I completely understood how this was going to go. 
So I think that, you know, when you, part of the reason people are successful at that level is because they're so charismatic, right? It's, they have such a presence in the room that um, for him, like, I think trying to, you know, find common things to talk with people is a way of like getting past that, right? Getting past that part of like, okay, yes, it's me. Like, let's talk instead of just, you know, people not being able to speak. Mm, yeah, no, I can imagine. I can imagine it would be that, that every, every single person that meets you is going to be, you know, in all or aren't they, basically? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So how many people would you look after? So once you moved over there permanently, you were looking after him. Who else was part of the... the so I would treat anybody who was on the compound, whether it was a maintenance worker, secret service agents, cabinet members. The, the, only, the only restriction was my time. So for example, if I was seeing a cabinet member, I may have to hold, you know, 60 or 90 minutes on my schedule because, you know, they may run 10 minutes late or that, you know what I mean? So I had to give them a little extra room in my schedule to, for their schedule because they have scheduling concerns that are more important than mine. Right. But otherwise I would see everything, you know, from electricians and people that, you know, painted the house or, you know, did the lawn to a bunch of secret service agents or, or other people. So um, there's quite a few people there. It's, it's just kind of like any other place, but I was the only physio there. So it was just me. So uh, I was definitely gainfully employed. Mm, yeah, I can imagine that would be quite a busy job then if you got those people to look after. So how did it, how was it that you would go from, you'd been working in a big team, certainly in the, the front line, then you moved to the Pentagon, then you're on your own here. How was that for you? You know, I think for me, it, this was okay because I think I had already solidified working alone um, in Iraq, right? I had kind of learned that skill set of being an independent clinician and then kind of broaden uh, the things I could do as a clinician, the things I could help people with. Um, and um, the other thing was, you know, at the time when I was working there, uh, it, it wasn't a job that was broadcast, right? People didn't even know I was working there. And that was by intention. So I kind of had to be, um, you know, particular and, and diligent about who I interacted with and, and those sorts of things. So uh, it was okay, you know, to, to kind of be on my own in that setting. Um, and, you know, it, I think because it's, it's such a busy place, it's, it's constant movement, there's things constantly going on. Um, that they're really like a bizarre as it sounds like the time there really flew by just because it was so busy. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I can imagine that as well. So while you're there, so were you employed by the, um, the party or are you employed by the state? By the department of defense. So right. by the military. So while, so um, the best way to put it is I was military working for, for a civilian uh, organization. Right. So technically, you're not affiliated to Obama. Correct. Right. Correct. Right. Not while I was not there. Mm. Yeah. So then, so but when you were there when the election happened, so Obama leaves, and then you know there's the huge news, and that I think that's really changed. It's always been big news over here, but even more so when you know Donald Trump and Hillary are are going for it. So, what were you were you still at the White House at that point? 
I was. So I was there till January of 17. Um, I think that, you know, people did not, they did not anticipate Donald Trump winning, which I think is what most of the country felt as well. Um, and then when he won, there was certainly some adjustment that was going on. And then there was a large adjustment for me. Um, so Donald Trump was, was perceived to be the healthiest man ever to hold the office of presidency. So there was not a need for a sports medicine skilled physio due to that factor. Right, okay. How's that? <laughs> so was, were you, so, so just take a little back step there. So right, so Trump, so Obama's still a president mm -hmm. and then Trump wins the election. Like were you, did you see, what was Obama's reaction like when, when that happened? Um, I think like lots of people, he was, you know, I think he was more acutely aware that that was a possibility, but I didn't think he was uh, anticipating it as, as much, you know. I think everybody was kind of hopeful from their standpoint, right? Um, from, you know, the offices where I was at, to be honest, like the military is very good about whoever sits in the chair is whoever sits in the chair. We don't really, it doesn't really matter, right? Like we're going to do our job. If the person in the chair tells us to turn right, we're going to turn right. If the person in the chair tells us we need to turn left, we're going to turn left. So that, so the truth is like, in my sphere, it didn't change that much um, other than there was just some reshuffling of, um, I guess, uh, kind of what, what the incoming people wanted to have on hand, right? So, you know, that just kind of changed up a little bit, but it didn't really make any big changes um, to the other stuff that was going on. Mm. So then Trump comes in and says that he doesn't need a physio on the staff anymore. So right. that, is that basically the end? Is that you're in one day and then that's pretty much it done? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, he just kind of transitions over and then I just kind of slid over to another place. So I'm sorry. One second. I, I'm really sorry, but I have to take this. No Give me a second here. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. I am super sorry about that. It's really rude. Um, there's, you know, like two people that call me that I pick up the phone for. So sorry yeah. about that. Right. We're good. Yeah. Okay. No, cool. Um, yeah. So you've been, the Trump's come in, then what happens? So, um, right. The, uh, I slid over to another base super easy um and um just kind of picked up working over there in the executive medicine um which was basically doing the same thing i was doing before at at the white house but instead with generals instead of cabinet members right so it was a very easy transition for me to kind of just slide over and keep working kind of on this executive level of things um so um you know that was pretty easy right and then uh 
you know, I kind of did that for a little while and, and things were pretty easy. Mm. Very good. And then what are you up to now then? So now, you know, I've retired from the military. I am um, kind of doing private practice right now. Uh, more of a concierge model. I think the way, the way I like to look at it is I can work with the people and spend the time with people um, that I choose that I think I can help, right? As opposed to, I took a job at a clinic and now I'm just churning out patients again. Uh, whereas, you know, I can really work with somebody, um, you know, if like say they had a comp, like a, um, you know, one patient I had was a, a joint replacement revision. So they had a joint replacement and it did not go well. They had to go back and redo it. So there, so there was a lot of focus and attention and making sure that this one went well. Um, right. And that's, that's a labor intensive thing. That's not something you do, you know, in a 30 minute outpatient visit three times a week, you don't, you know, so I was able to really spend time and work with them and make sure that they got the results that they wanted um, with the oversight. So that's kind of how I look at what I do now. Um, you know, I think that that is, uh, it's a luxury as a clinician and I appreciate that, right? But I also think that, um, you know, as, as anything, if you get, you know, pretty decent at what you do, then you have more flexibility at how you choose to do it. Mm. Yeah, yeah, no, I can imagine that is a, it's a nice way to operate when you're not hamstrung yeah. by the, uh, the time factor on things. And just one question in terms of the, the administration side. So during an election or a campaign time, how labor intensive would that for you? Because if you're looking after a whole big crew of people, do you then just travel with say the president elect or whoever it is? Yeah. So I can say that, um, you know, a campaign is very much like, um, like a playoff season, right. Or like a end of the season tournament where you all your focus, everybody's focused on one thing. So there's a lot of bandwidth all pointing in one direction. Um, and, uh, like I was able to watch like lots of people really burn themselves out during a campaign season because everybody feels like, you know, we have to win. Like we ha I have to put in the energy to get the results. And this is a one-time thing. So if we don't, there's no, like if I, if we don't make this, if it, we don't get the results we want, there is nothing else. So people are kind of willing to, to push themselves a little harder. Um, and that's where, you know, a better understanding of health and wellness on a broader range uh, was super helpful. Um, and yeah, it, you know, it, it gets, people work themselves pretty hard, you know, and being able to kind of help guide them um, and, you know, also still hold them accountable for if they had some sort of injury or issue of, you know, listen, you can't skip out on the rehab right now because, 10 weeks from now, you won't be able to do this. So if we don't do this now, you're not going to do this later. Right. Or, you know, the good rehab saying of always is pay me now or pay for it later, but you're paying for it somewhere, right? Somewhere along this line, you are going to pay to manage this. So either we can do it now and you can spend the energy and time, or you can pay for it later with not being able to do that thing. So, um, you know, and a lot of it too is, is being able to give people, um, solid clinical trustworthy medical advice right so like they know 
I don't have any secondary gain out of it. I'm telling you, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time and energy getting smart on these topics. I will give you my opinion. You could do whatever you want, but this is what I would recommend, right? And having somebody to give you kind of unfettered uh, advice is, is a really valuable thing to have in those situations. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. So final question before we wrap oh, yeah. Would you, if uh, Biden came calling, his administration said, do you want to come back to the White House? Would you be up for that? So, I, you know, somebody else asked me that. And I said, man, the, my first run through that place cost me my hair color, right? So the joke I always made with Obama was like, I showed up there with black hair. And he's like, so did I. I was like, I know. So then I'm like, I don't know. What would another run? Like, it'll probably cost me all my hair. Um, but, um, you know, I think as a, as a retired, you know, army officer, it's always very hard to say no to the commander in chief if they ask you to do something. I don't know that that, what that role would look like or if that would even happen. Um, but I'm certainly open to always helping out, you know, regardless of who it is, you know, the, you know, if the commander in chief asks you, your answer is probably yes. I'm sure it's very same as if the queen mom asked you to, to show up, you'll probably show up. Yeah. She's not asked me much recently, but yeah, if she did, you're probably right. <laughs> really? No, genuinely, that's been really fascinating. I've wanted to sit down with you for a while to, to pick your brains and all of this. Yeah, it's good mm. to catch up. Always good to talk, man. No, no, likewise. Well, hopefully we can catch up again properly over a drink sooner rather than later. Soon enough. Soon enough. Yeah, perfect. Okay, great. Thanks, Drew. Thanks for joining. Thanks. Take care.